For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, find out about a new facility being built in Nogales that could provide support for migrants during their long wait while seeking asylum in the United States. Learn how an ecological mystery at the Mission Garden led to the discovery that some exotic and elusive neighbors have been visiting the garden every night in search of food. Plus, how StoryCorps' new project, One Small Step, is helping strangers to find common ground. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The Trump administration and the Mexican government have agreed to a policy known as Remain in Mexico. It requires those seeking asylum in the U.S. to stay in Mexico as they await their court date. It's being challenged in American courts and causing havoc in Mexican border communities. Nancy Montoya reports. The policy basically says after asylum seekers from Central America present themselves at U.S. ports of entry, they must return to Mexico to await their immigration hearing. Now we are learning that one of those first court dates for those waiting in Ciudad Juarez, across from El Paso, Texas, is a year from now. The same goes for Tijuana, Mexico, near San Diego. Now, so far, the policy is not being enforced at the Arizona ports of entry. But human rights proponents in Orales, Sonora, fear it's only a matter of time. The nonprofit Kino Border Initiative, a Catholic consortium, has been working on a plan to help those deported back to Mexico. Father Sean Carroll, who heads up the group, says they foresaw this crisis and are now taking steps to get migrants the help they will need. We've had a need for new space for, for a long time. We've been very space-challenged with the limited space in our Commodore, and after a long process, we bought a building across the street from our Commodore. It's in Nogales, Sonora, and it's going to increase our capacity in a lot of ways. So we're going to have a, a dining area for 150 people. We're going to have a shelter for 36 women and children. We'll have a men's shelter, which we don't have right now, for 72 men. We'll have individual spaces for uh, legal assistance, psychological support, social worker. We'll have two classrooms we'll be using to do job training for migrants who are interested in working and living in Nogales. What are the costs like on something like this, and how have you been able to raise the money, and do you still need more help with raising funds? We're in a $2.8 million campaign. Uh, the remodel is happening as we raise the funds. So we had we had raised money over the years that allowed us to buy the building and to begin the remodel. But uh, the $2.8 million campaign is mainly uh, for three areas. It's been the building purchase and remodel for our first year of operating in the new building because obviously when we move in there, it's, it's a bigger facility and to have a bigger impact, we're going to need to, to staff it so that we can uh, work in that new facility and then and then an emergency fund. So if a migrant caravan comes or, or if there's a serious situation on the border, we have a fund that we can draw on to respond to that need. How concerned are you, Father Sean, about more migrants coming in? I mean, 
we haven't seen the numbers that Tijuana and West Texas have seen, but there have been increased numbers coming through Nogales. What's your level of concern at this point? I mean, there are a lot of people waiting in Nogales, Sonora right now to present at the port of entry to uh, request asylum in the U.S. More people could come in the future, really all the more reason that we remodel this building and open this new facility so that we can respond more fully to the needs and have the biggest impact possible in the lives of these men, women, and children. What about the uh, the Trump administration's policy of wait in Mexico? Um, I don't know where that is in the court system. I know there's been some injunctions filed, but when all is said and done, how does that impact Nogales Sonora and the people waiting for asylum? It hasn't been implemented in Nogales Sonora yet. It's been implemented in Tijuana, Mexicali, and Ciudad Juarez, but that hasn't happened in Nogales yet. But the people we're serving continues to be the deportees, people who are deported to Mexico from the U.S., but also the many families who have made their way north and are waiting to present themselves to customs at the port of entry. So are you seeing the majority of them being Mexican, or are they Central American? Do you have any idea on the breakdown? They're both. We definitely have people from Mexico. I'd say the vast majority are from the Mexican state of Guerrero, southern Mexico. We've been receiving a very high number of, of people from, from that state. And then and then Central America, of course, it's the Northern Triangle, Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala. Why do you think that the weight in Mexico policy hasn't been implemented in Nogales? Is that a Tucson sector decision or... Any any words of wisdom on that, why that hasn't happened? I'm not quite sure why it hasn't happened yet. But we're very concerned about the policy because it really hinders people's capacity to access legal support for their cases, and it leaves them very vulnerable uh, on the border because of the vulnerability and because of the, the difficulty in accessing legal support from the other side of the border. We're certainly not in favor of this policy. I notice that there aren't the lines of people waiting in uh, Nogales, Sonora, that there are in some of the other places. What's happening to these people? Are they just not showing up at Nogales in big numbers, or are they being serviced? So there's a list that's maintained, and it has the, the names of the adults, how many children they have. It has the shelter that they're staying in, because there are different shelters in Nogales, Sonora, because it's a three-month wait. So some people are staying in shelters, some people are renting rooms while they wait. We've known of some cases of some people uh, sleeping on the street as well. It's a very, very concerning situation. Father Sean says the facility is about 70% completed. They have made the plans and more information available to the public on their website at kinoborderinitiative.org. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Nancy Montoya. Those of us who live in the city must acknowledge that we share the desert around us with a multitude of creatures, including some who prefer to stay off the radar, which is kind of ironic. 
On Saturday, I went to the Mission Garden to join many other Tucsonans who were eager to learn about a group of stealthy visitors who've been arriving nightly from the area around A Mountain. Before talking to some experts, I listened to a few stories that others had about having close encounters with bats. My name is Molly McCasson, and my bat story is when my father-in-law was about in his late 80s, he's a, he was a great bird lover, and bats aren't birds, but still, he said, oh, I'd love to see all those bats flying out underneath the underpass. So we went out Broadway in Houghton, and <laughs> we're standing there. We were pretty close, and, you know, 2,000 bats, whatever, came in just pulsing waves, and my father-in-law was... <laughs> It was like a culminating thing. He, he was just awed. It was the most exciting. It was, it was really great. That is great. I can hear it in your voice telling the story. Yeah, it was yeah. beautiful. So first of all, just identify yourself. Only. Okay, my name is Debbie Beecher, and I'm a bat biologist in Tucson, and I do bat research in Arizona and New Mexico. And I have my own consulting firm. I do contract work for Forest Service, Park Service, Bureau of Land Management. And I'm always interested in any story about bats. And so if someone calls and says, I have an odd bat at my house, I will go out and identify it. This gathering tonight is in honor of recognition that there's at least five species of bat who are shopping for food here here in the garden. And getting water. Bats primarily need roost sites, water, and the appropriate food. Well, roost sites could be up, we're right at the base of, of a mountain, and there are a lot of rock piles and a lot of crevices, so bats could be in, in there. We have nearby bridges, and bats will use bridges in Tucson, but they come over here, and there are all these insects. They've essentially made this orchard full of insect food. The mystery here was they were finding debris of stuff at the exhibit hall up high on near the ceiling. They sent me a picture. Chuck Graff, who is a donor and volunteer here, put up a wildlife camera. It gets triggered by um, movement. And he looked at the pictures, and here's this bat eating a caterpillar like um, a straw. And it's, it's sucking up the innards and shaking the outside skin of the caterpillar and flicking it against the wall. And what we're seeing is caterpillar sheaths stuck to the wall. And he got some tremendous videos, which I'm going to show during it's, my it's talk. It's like tamale shells it, or something, Well, isn't I tell it? kids when I give school talks, you always unwrap your food. And they're just unwrapping their food. Right. <laughs> When you talk about bat detectors, what kind of tech are you using? We've got some tripods ahead of us here with a camera and some other devices. So tell us what you use to measure or look at the bat population and get involved in that secret world. Okay, so as soon as you turn on a white light, the bats will leave, um, they'll be disturbed, you won't see natural behavior. So these lights are infrared lights. You can still see a dim light, but they've shown through time that it does not alter bat behavior. Mm -hmm. So we'll have these lights on. Those are two little action cams that the filters have been taken off, so they'll be able to see an infrared. That will turn on in infrared. Here is a detector. If I turn it on, this is sensitive to high-frequency sound. Mm -hmm. and So this is a heterodyne 
uh, bat detector, so it just clicks at you. Mm -hmm. It doesn't save the call. Those two bat detectors, and I'm, I'm letting people move around with them later on, but those will give clicks, but then it will also save the call, put a date and time stamp on it, and the, the brilliant people who have invented those created algorithms to take that sound, electrical sound, and translate it to a picture that we can see. And then I have two other detectors that are time expansion, and, and people will be able to see as a bat flies by their call go across the screen. About the species that we expect to see tonight, what would be the smallest and what might be the largest? Is there too much of a difference between those factors in terms of these local bats? Well, in Tucson, the basin, Tucson Basin, we have the largest and the smallest bat species in North America here. The little western canyon bat is about four grams, so you can calculate how many you could mail with a first-class stamp. <laughs> I, maybe you can. Yeah, but the largest bat species in North America is a western mastiff, and it's more like 65 grams. And I brought a western mastiff with me that we'll be able to look at tonight. She has an injury and can't be released. She can't fly. Okay. So great. here's a big brown bat. And he would echolocate at about 30 kilohertz. Every time he opens his mouth, he's shouting out high-frequency sound. If I take that away, the detector away, he is still shouting out sound above what we can hear. And he is not blind. He can see just fine, but he gets better definition with high-frequency sound because he's nocturnal and he's out with no moon. He's trying to chase an insect four, four millimeters in size. So sound is his friend. Echoes are his friend. And what can you tell us about this uh, bat in particular? Who is this? Um, this is a big brown uh, scientific name, Eptesicus fuscus, and we call him Archie. Um, we've had him 17 years, 16 mm -hmm. years. Wow. It was fur. I mean, it's got amazing fur. Incredibly soft. Very, very mm -hmm. sweet. The only thing I can think of I've ever felt like that was would be like a lucky rabbit's foot. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. you can't really see his tail. Um, it, it's enclosed in a membrane. Uh -huh. But also in identification, one of the bats you find at Carlsbad and under the bridges in Tucson, called free tail bats. And they have just a long tail sticking out. Well, if you want to make Archie happy, what do you do? Is there something that he likes, enjoys in terms of food or drink? He likes a back rub. He likes mayonnaise. He likes whipped cream. Not just a little dollop, just yeah. a little dollop. And he loves a little toothpick with avocado on it. <laughs> so Bob says the avocado tastes like insect guts. I mean, obviously. I never thought of that. Maybe that's why green I don't like gooey. avocado. Yeah, green and gooey. So can you identify yourself for me, please? Who are you? I'm Bob Beecher, um, Debbie's husband. And my um, field assistant in, in almost all tasks. He has designed an infrared bat counter that when the bat breaks the beam, it puts a time and date stamp on it. And so we don't have to always be at a roost to see how many bats are roosting there because it's counting every night and we just go once a month to be sort of a control to see how much it's, if it's, you know, accurate or well, off that's a little bit. He must be a rock star among bat researchers. <laughs> well, he's, he's an electronics wizard. Okay. <laughs> well, fantastic.
Does anybody have a bad story? Um, a bad story? Oh, I yeah. once was... <laughs> you thought it went instantly. I'm Amanda Moss and I'm a native Tucsonan and I was once looking at like sunset hunting and over on the east side, not here. Sunset hunting. Yes. I like that phrase. I've never heard that before. And uh, it was over by the Pantano Wash and I, so I was going and walking around and trying to find the best place to get a photo and then it was walking under one of the underpasses and all these bats came out and I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> and they were like right over my head. I was walking under the underpass and I was like crouched down and doing all this whole thing. Did you have the wherewithal to take a picture while that was happening? Not of the bats, but right. I got to the other side to get to take the photo of the sunset. <laughs> that was a visit to the first ever bat night at the Mission Garden, southwest of downtown Tucson. I talked with bat researchers Debbie and Bob Beesher and heard stories from Tucsonans Molly McCasson and Amanda Moss. The Mission Garden welcomes their new winged visitors, and they may be holding more bat nights in their honor in the near future. Regular NPR listeners have most likely heard StoryCorps before. Since it began in 2003, the nonprofit has archived tens of thousands of recordings in the Library of Congress. So far, one thing that every StoryCorps session has had in common is that they are between people who know and care about each other. But StoryCorps' latest initiative, called One Small Step, is different. It's a chance for people who have never met to come together and share their personal experiences and how those experiences have shaped their views on social and political issues. It's an attempt to find common ground and raise awareness of our similarities. NPR 89.1 is one of six stations across the country that's been chosen to participate and invite people here to have their words recorded for future generations. There's a survey online right now at azpm.org that can get you started if you'd like to take part. Here's a sample from a One Small Step recording made in the AZPM radio studio between 72-year-old Kirk Reed and 42-year-old Andy Baker. I grew up in Georgia. After college, I did my two years in the Army, then wanted to go to grad school and finally settled in Chicago, partly because of the Chicago Cubs. <laughs> also some good schools. Yeah. Baseball fan. Absolutely. So you're a Tucsonan your whole life. Yes. I lived in Tucson most of my life. I did live in Phoenix for a while with okay. a company that I worked for. I traveled around a lot with that company, so I got to see a few different states and spend time uh, away from the state. But I came back because Arizona's beautiful. And you started your own business. Yeah, I actually started with my brother. I came from that company and moved back to Tucson to start a, uh, this business with my brother, rebuilding engines. So we, uh, it's all automotive machine work. We grew up around cars. My grandfather had a junkyard back in Iowa and uh, all of his sons work on cars, including my dad. And 
So we were kind of raised in the grease and grime, and I have a real love for it. So I guess if I was going to summarize in one sentence my passion, I've always loved school, but I realized that school doesn't teach you everything you need to know. So somebody told me once when I was a chaplain in a hospital, you know, you're going to spend the rest of your life trying to get your head connected with your heart. And I don't think I've ever done it <laughs> quite like I hope to, but it's a it's a goal. Oh, yeah. It's something to strive for. My first church in a neighborhood, just a working-class neighborhood in Chicago, they had a lot more faith and common sense than I did. I think only three out of 200 had gone to college. But I learned so much from them that that, that really influenced me. Mm-hmm. I said, I hope I can be more like some of them. Yeah, I believe in that as well. More people need to get out and be with people and understand where they're coming from because you can't learn that in a book. Yeah, unfortunately, most of the people that I know pretty much agree with my perspective on the world. and mm. That's one reason I signed up for this. Oh, yeah. Hopefully to talk to some people that Yeah, I was kind of a little surprised different. that they would... Uh, Pair me up with somebody who was also Christian. But I definitely like to listen to other people's viewpoints, especially if those that differ from mine. Well, there are a lot of differences among Christians. Oh, yeah. For better or worse. Mm -hmm. When I worked in Colorado, I did a a condo in Telluride, which was beautiful. I went to a church up there, and they had three different churches in the same building, and they were all Christian. And I... I talked to several members of, of each group and tried to figure out and, and really grilled them on why. It's such a small community. Why can't you find common ground enough to be able to make one church out of the three? And the, none of the groups are very large. And I just, I still don't understand how you can't put differences aside, especially within the same faith, to be able to come together in what we're supposed to do as far as you know, my knowledge of in, and worship God. The trouble I have is when somebody says, my way is completely right and everybody else is completely wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you don't agree with me, you're condemned. And there are some people that I run into like that. Oh, yeah, especially in the church. It becomes very difficult. But That's been a struggle for me. How do you deal with that? Well, I've always been a, a pretty mellow person, so I try not to let things get to me too bad. <laughs> I mean, I get frustrated like anybody else and get upset. I try not to be too vocal. I save that for my brother because I know I can yell at him and <laughs> we we get along afterwards. But, uh, yeah, it's difficult. I mean, that's one of the hardest things. And I'm constantly, you know, I enjoy the discussion. And I even will take up views that I don't agree with just because I want to really work through the problem. Whereas people get, like you say, set in something. They don't want to hear any other views where I think it's important to look at all views mm-hmm. and really try to understand a direction forward. So I try not to be too condemning, but try to look past the 
conflict in order to find a path forward, mm -hmm. I guess is the best way to. You've heard that old it. saying, don't confuse me with the facts. Mm -hmm. I've already made up my mind. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. I think a good case can be made for being more open, the church being more open than we have been. Yeah. And just one other example is when we meet people who are different from us, like when I finally started meeting some Christians who are, who are gay, mm. it helped me at least base my interest on relating to people rather than just ideas. Mm. Same thing happened the first time I got to know a bunch of Muslims in Chicago, they came to my office one day and said, we want to get acquainted. And I kind of said, fine, but I didn't follow up. And they came back and we really became friends and spent a lot of time together. We did a lot of meals together. We observed them when they prayed. They, they stayed with us when we prayed and just built some relationships. I think that's one of the best approach you can take. I mean, it, it's not your place to condemn anybody. With the advent of the internet, I saw really great potential early on for people to to come together and and be able to really change in a positive way our country because this is a platform that isn't controlled by the government and it isn't controlled by large money conglomerates and these media outlets that have more money than they know what to do with. This gave us a hope, I guess, to be able to come together individually as people and discuss things that could carry us into a better future. And I think that's it's still working now, but they're trying to take that away by saying that, well, you can't say this because it offends this person. So we're going to limit what you can say, or we're going to remove what you say without even telling you so it's becoming a, a very controlled environment where it's going to take all the authenticity out of it. And Do it really, you see any danger from hate speech or threats? I don't believe have? in hate speech. You know, there's been hateful speech since the advent of speech. So, I mean, it isn't something new. Like I said, it's a little different now because people say things without truly thinking about what they're saying. But I think in time that can change you know given the fact that we should have faith in individuals to be able to make decisions thanks to kirk reed and andy baker for participating in one small step a program designed by StoryCorps. if you're interested in having a conversation with someone new about your experiences and how they've shaped your values visit azpm.org one small step and complete the survey to let us know. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. This show originates from the AZPM radio studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.
Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.